Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Brethren, as you've heard, the title is The Ecclesia Part 2. I hope you've not wondered if there's anything else to talk about the Ecclesia after my last message here a few weeks ago. In fact, my wife as well, when she saw the topic, also wondered if there was something else that I could say after that presentation. Well, I I didn't um, tell her anything, but she just managed to see part of the presentation. But I was hoping that um, I was going to be able to surprise her. There is more to learn than we really actually have time to cover. In the last message... We provided several clues in Ephesians chapter 1 to show how a wrong terminology or a wrong word or a bad translation when we were referring to the word church can actually rob us of our understanding of what God really wanted to communicate to us. Through the message and the discussion that followed, we were able to come to see that the body of Christ, as Paul was addressing in the Ephesian congregation, constituted Israel. That is to say, the people who have a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And of course, since that time, I have heard a few things said, especially at the feast and even outside the feast, about that understanding that we are Israel. And I'm thankful to our elders for that recognition that we, God's people, the chosen, the elect, the beloved, Israel is us. And I'm particularly thankful to our brother and our elder, Adrian Davis, because I think he's bringing more light also on that recognition in the presentations that I've heard. But today, my main goal is to show the composition of Israel with the express desire to show that there's yet one more word which, unless 
properly understood would confound our understanding of the Ecclesia. That word is the word Gentile. Starting with its usage in the book of Ephesians by Paul. So that is where I'll start from. Brethren, I would conclude based on internal Pauline evidence that the Gentiles, as used by Paul in his epistle to the Ephesians, are Israelites. And not non-Israelite Christians. The word Gentile can be used for non-Israelites. And so what it means is that it does not preclude non-Israelites from the community of believers. But they were not. That is the non-believing, sorry, the non-Israelite believers, they were not the ones Paul was addressing in his letter to the brethren in Ephesus. Therefore, if we use the word Gentile to refer to non-Israelites, we have to be clear. And also keep in mind that the context has to bear it out. If it doesn't, then we just don't have to go with a blanket statement that the moment you hear the word Gentile, we're talking about non-Israelites. That is not what the evidence shows. And this is purely Pauline scriptural evidence that we would cover. First of all, let's refresh our minds that Israel, generally speaking, is made up of Judah, or the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. Also, keep in mind that there are Always, always, all the time, there are proselytes among Israelites. And this is true to date. So, beside the house of Judah and the house of Israel, there are always and there are proselytes who share in Israel's covenant. The proselytes share in the covenant, but they are not the covenant holders. The the Protestant world sees only Jews, which they equate to Israelites. All. Israelite, generally. And for that matter, 
they are not able to account for the Gentiles. Because if you go out there, they say, oh, they're Jews. And in their mind, they are referring to Israel, general. That is both the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And once you've done that, then how are you going to account for any Gentiles? And because of that, they automatically conclude that the Gentiles cannot be any people who are Israelites. There are so many things we can talk about when we're going to be focusing on Ephesians chapter 2. But I would jump to those matters that are easier to highlight, at least for me. Some things are, it takes some time to get, them, get around to them. But some things are a matter of careful reading and not jumping over words. And once you read them carefully, you can highlight that there are internal evidence, both in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and some, at least, wider coverage that the Gentiles that he referred to are Israelites. So I provide five pieces of evidence that will conclude who the Gentiles were or are. And as per my thesis, that they are not non-Israelites. But I've already said that there could be some non-Israelites that could be referred to as Gentiles. But I'm dealing particularly with the Gentiles, as Paul mentioned and referred to them in his letter to the community in Ephesus. So, brethren, we're going to proceed because we will have some grounds to cover. And as we proceed, you'll find that Paul did not break in his thought in his writing of chapter 2 from chapter 1. So, we covered chapter 1, largely. And there was no break in thought. And then he continued with chapter 2. Keep in mind that we have given the chapter breaks. But when you read it, you don't see a break in thought. So when you continue, you begin to gather the evidence to discover who these people are. So you can open to Ephesians chapter 2 because we're pretty much going to be staying there the entire time of the message. So Ephesians 2, but before evidence number 1, we're going to go to chapter 1. Last time that we spoke about the Ecclesia, 
in Ephesians 1, this is how it goes. If Paul, in chapter 1, wrote to a group of people who Yahweh foreknew, who were chosen, who were predetermined to the adoption at sons, people who have received redemption through Christ, and people who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as a guarantee for their inheritance. If we read all these things about the people that Paul addressed in a in episode, then my evidence is how could Paul then midstream start talking about the same people as if they never were a part of Israel. So that's my first point. Keep in mind, he's, chapter 1, he's identified these people that he's writing to. They are the saints. They, are, they were for noon. They were chosen. They are, they be, uh, the adoption belongs to them. They were the people that were redeemed and they are the people that are guaranteed the inheritance. So if that group of people, we identify them as Israel, then how come he's writing to the same people all of a sudden, he continues, and then he changed, and then he's referring to them as, you have never, God has never foreknew you. He never knew you. You have no inheritance. You are not the adopt, uh, adoption. Like, it doesn't follow sequence of thought you, you we have to make him a crazy guy to, to do that but whilst i make that point you only don't have to take it but as we read into chapter two you will see how it flows so that would be what i would consider to be evidence number one that continuity of thought is there from chapter 1 into chapter 2. And so if you knew who were in chapter 1, then you can't miss who are in chapter 2. Evidence number 2. We're going to look at Ephesians 1, sorry, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, which my daughter read in the scripture reading. But let's back up just a few verses from um, chapter 1. I'm looking for where I would really get a good start. Probably let me start from 15. Verse 15 of um, chapter 1. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith, talking about the community of believers he's addressing in Ephesians 1, your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in, the age, in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the congregation or to the saints or to the church, the ecclesia, which is, is in his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 1 ends. And he said, and you. Look at the connection. The continuity of thought. You people that I'm just talking about. And you. He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Paul is saying, look, I'm telling you about your background. I've said all this prayer for you, but brethren, who were you? You actually went astray. You actually were dead in sin. That is where you were before you were quickened, brought back to be made alive. And all these things, right now I'm focusing on the Pauline evidence. But if you went into the prophets, you would see when Israel fell out, the house of Israel. Why did they go into captivity? Why did God divorce them? They were dead. They went away from the way of God. That is the state in which Israel was until Christ came and quickened them and brought them back to bring them back. And we're going to see more of bringing them back. But so Paul is now describing their status. They were. Paul is not saying that is who they are. I'm just telling you where you came from before you were quickened, before Christ made you alive again. That is where you were. Those were the sinful state in which we found ourselves. And you see verse 4 say, but God. So he's carrying on it where they were and how God did it. How God quickened them. How God made them alive. But whilst we were in that sinful state, this is what happened. But God who is rich 
in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Really? These are people who are non-Israelites? With God so loved them? Tell me, which people? In which nation? That God said this about them. That he loved them. And being moved by his compassion to go after them. Which people are like that? Paul is suggesting that these are people who God loved even when they were sinners. Even when they went astray. Even when they were divorced. Because the love that we're talking about here, that is what John couldn't understand. And he said, Behold, what manner of love had the Father bestowed on us. This is not love you can understand. This is the love of a man going after an whoring wife that nobody, not a lot of us, would do it. But this is God going after this woman. In spite of every filthiness you can think about. In spite of everything that this woman has fallen into. He said, I still love you. And I will come after you. I will quicken you from your deafness. And raise you up. And make you live again. And so when with all this love and he pursued this woman, these people, and he said, even when we were dead in trespasses. Paul said the same thing to the Romans. Even when we were gone, when we were ungodly, when we were your enemies, you still reached to us and made us alive together with Christ. And then he said, by grace, this thing happened to you. You, you can't have any merit in this. You didn't do anything. Actually, you did everything against it. But I loved you and wanted to bring you back and raise you with Christ. So by grace, you have been saved. And raised up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, keep in mind, this is just a remnant. Just a remnant. But in the ages to come, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. When everything culminates in the bumper harvest. For by grace, you have been saved from this deadness. For by grace, I have delivered you from this ungodliness. For by grace, I have taken you out of this situation described in one to three. This is the gift of God. You didn't do anything. Israel, let me tell you, you did not do anything to merit it. 
it is God's love, His grace. Not of works, so that anybody, oh, we obeyed the law, we kept it. We kept the Sabbath, the feast days. And God became so merciful to us. None of that. Actually, you trample upon all those. So you got nothing to boast about. You have nothing to tell anybody that you did anything. This is all my doing. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There was something ordained for us to walk in. Which he prepared ahead of us. But we didn't. Brethren, that constitutes the second evidence that whilst the early uh, verses 1 to 3 dealt with the sin of Israel, particularly the divorce and the dispersed house of Israel, Paul refers to them as being dead in sin, but quickened or made alive together with Christ, verse 4 to 6. This process is based on God's love. It is based on unmerited favor, which Israel cannot take credit for because of her deadness. This is the crux of the evidence. That by God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us. That is the crux of the evidence. That these are people that have experienced God's love before. But in spite of all that love, they kick against it. And so he's talking to them kind of historically who they were and how that love came through Christ to quicken them and deliver them from their deadness. Remember, as I said, this is the love of pursuit of a wife. And God could not leave this wife blemished. If you look at the wife, the wife was blemished. And God could not leave that woman in that state. Because it's going to reflect on him. And never can that reflect on God. So he had to purge that woman in order that he would present that woman unblemished. Brethren, evidence number three. This is where somebody will get up and say, oh, look, Lewis, see, what about this verse, verse 11? And that is one that is the next evidence. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in her flesh. So look at, and you. And he talk about them like this. And then say, you, these same people, now were people that God never knew them. God never had any relationship with them. No covenant with them. He never promised them anything. And then Paul is referring to the people of 
Ephesus as you are the ones that God never knew. Remember that God never knew you. No. Paul can't just make that jump because that becomes very interesting. So Paul says, remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. So, I don't think the connector alone proves the point that these Gentiles are not non-Israelites. Here, let's do some digging into the word. And I I cover some grounds in this word, and it's a very interesting revelation what is written out there just purely from academic standpoint. These are dictionaries, so not what the word means. So I started with Encyclopedia Britannica, just world dictionaries, and asking them, what does Gentile mean? And this is what they say, first sentence, Gentile, comma, person who is not Jewish. So, if we took Britannica and we put it in this scripture, then Paul is saying that these people have no. And keep in mind that when the world say Jewish, they're talking about Israel generally. So they're not just talking about the house of Judah. They don't understand it. So, this is what he said. There's some contradiction if I read on, but that is their main point. And then they say, this word stems from the Hebrew word goy, which means nation, and was applied both to Hebrews and to any other nation. The plural, goyim, especially with the definite article, hagoyim, that is the nations, meant nations of the world, that were not Hebrew. Okay. And then this is where it gets interesting. And then Britannica said, the Latin versions of the Bible. So here, it's, not, it's jumping into religious stuff. The Latin versions of the Bible, and you can think of the Vulgate, translated Goim as Gentis. This is Latin word. I'm, I don't know what I'm saying, right? G-E-N-T-E-S. And singular gent, G-E-N. Or gentile or gentil, an adjective form of the gent. G-E-N-S. So when the Bible was being translated from Hebrew into Latin, and they wanted a word that represents goy or goyem in Latin. They found in their word these words, gents, gentile, gentil, gentis. Those are the words that the Latin people use. And then they said, in modern age, keep track. 
in modern age, Gentile applies to a single individual, although occasionally, as in English translations of the Bible, the Gentiles means the nations. In modern times, then you go to post-biblical times. You say, in post-biblical Hebrew, God came to mean an individual non-Jew rather than a nation. So this is not God's word changing. It's, a, it's just post-Bible Hebrew. So there's a change in the understanding. Because most non-Jews in the Western world because most non-Jews, sorry, because most non-Jews in the Western world were Christians. Gentile came to be equated with Christian. Strictly speaking, however, any non-Jew is a Gentile. And it's also used in among Mormons. I won't go there. Mormons define it different. So the point that I want to make here is that look at how they started defining a Gentile. Look at the chronology of different changes that have happened over time in modern usage, um, post-biblical Hebrew times. There have been changes. So keep track of that. And then what I try to do is then, okay, so let me go to the Latin word that is called, it's the equivalent of goy. And goy is Hebrew word that has been used some of, King James have translated some of them nations, some of them they translate Gentile. That is just a choice that they determined in the English translation. But when Latin translated it into Latin, from Hebrew into Latin, and they used a Latin word that represents the Greek word goi or goim, those words that they use in the Latin, what does it mean? And, and so I, I went to a Latin dictionary with English explanation, and so gentilis, which is the Latin word that is gent, that we talk about, plus ilis, and say number one, of or belonging to a Roman gent, where they have said the gent is a nation. So if you are or belong to a Roman nation, then you are, if we say it in English, then you are a gentile. So that's Latin. Of one's house or family. That's another point of definition. So gents means of one's house. If people belonging to my house or my family, we belong to the same gents. In a sense, the same Gentiles. Number two, of or belonging to one's tribe or race or national. That's Latin. So if we belong to the same tribe, the same um, nationality, tribe, or race, we are Gentiles. From Latin to English, I mean. Of one's birthplace or nativity. So where you come from, you are Gentile to that place. From Latin mindset. Of or concerning foreign people. So when... In Latin, they are describing the people from a local or from a particular tribe or a particular, they use the word, I'm saying it in English, Gentile. But if they are talking about of or concerning foreign people, they use the same word, Gentile. 
So how would you know who is a Roman, a, a Latino in that sense, uh, from a Latin background? And how would you know who is not one of them? It's only the context that will tell you. And so that is the basic understanding we all have with the word nation. Every nation is a nation. Whether they're a good nation or they're a bad nation, they're a nation. The only difference you can know whether this nation is good or this bad is what the context is saying. And in Bible, Bible, God's people, we're a nation. Nation of people who don't believe God, they're also a nation. If you want to distinguish us from other people that don't believe in God, the only thing that I will tell you is what we are saying about them, the context. But the word in itself doesn't mean. That is what we get from the Latin. So the word in itself doesn't mean one is a non-something or something. It depends on the context. You can go to other dictionaries. I went to the Oxford English Dictionary, 1978. And so this one is English. So they are explaining Gentile as in English. And they say, it comes from, they trace it back to the Latin word, gentil, gent. They trace it back. They also trace it back to a French word, a French word, gentil. But when they start breaking it down in English, they say, in applications, listen carefully. In applications derived from the Vulgate. Remember what the Encyclopedia Britannica said? It said, if they use this word in applications derived from the Vulgate, now usually written with a capital initial, then it means of or pertaining to any or all of the nations other than the Jewish. So now somebody is putting something in here. This is Vulgate. So Vulgate's understanding of Gentile is that everybody else that is not Jewish. But when we went to the Latin, the Latin they say that. Because even Romans or people from any particular family, they were all Gentiles. At the same time, any foreigner in that land was also a Gentile. But here, he's made it categorically that, let's say, from, from what they're saying, that Jewish people can't be Gentiles. They can't be Gentiles. It's everybody else apart from you. Okay, let leave that there. And he said, when we talk about heathen, pagan people, so they make uh, Gentile also mean one heathen or pagan people. And then they come from senses derived from Latin. Senses, that de derived from the word as is understood in Latin. And then they're going to say the same thing as I said in Latin. Pertaining to a nation or tribe. So that is generic. Pertaining to any nation or tribe. So it could also be Jewish people as well. So people all with Jewish background are also Gentiles. If you're going to use that word to describe them. 
it's it's not it's generic of a word indicating the country pertaining to a nation so these are things that i've already mentioned whilst i'm doing it in the latin and if you go into modern dictionaries they will maintain the same stance as strictly going straight and saying oh um, a gentile is anybody who is not jewish point being that gentile that the english used to 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 bring it here because the word goy and goyim is hebrew if you come to greek it's ethnos ethne the same meaning as in the hebrew nation or nations so the word that the english people chose to use gentile to replace in verse 11 strictly is nation and if they use gentile coming from a latin mindset then the latin people also say it can be anybody it's only the context so now my question is if we are left with the context to determine who these gentiles are then that's our job because the word in itself does not connote that once you use it this is what it means it's the context so now we are the judges we are left with this this word could be jewish people it could be non-jewish people it could be israelite it could be non-israelite it could be romans non-romans because you're only defining a people from their common ancestry or from their common nativity. So now, if we read this verse, based on what we've read earlier, and he comes by and says, Therefore, remember, I'm taking you back again, remember that you were Gentiles. Now, the word also means people who are not from Israel. We've accepted that. The foreign people. So when Israel is divorced and they don't know anything, when Israel is dispersed and go into the world, guess who they become? They are no longer Israel. So if you are comparing, then you can't compare them to being Israel. Keep here. Don't get confused. But you are not saying that they are not ethnically not Israel. They've been divorced from the covenant of Israel. So they become like nobody. They become like other people. But ethnically, they are Israelite. Covenantally, they are not. So this is the sense that Paul is talking about here that they were gentiles and in fact there's a word english called gentilized i didn't get into that but you can be gentilized so when you take gentiles from you and the others as not part of you when those people move from you to become the other people they actually have been gentilized and any group of people can be gentilized so if i'm a can and somebody stray from our arcanism 
to be non-Akan, the person has Gentilized. If it's you, you're a Soviet and you move from Soviet to become um, uh, um, uh, what, what is uh, something else? <laughs> is the world only Soviet? So if you're Soviet and you become uh, an American, Soviet can say that you have Gentilized. So it's not something that is strictly speaking identified as Hebrew. I think we've made a point. And so here, understanding the word is critical. And if we we miss this understanding and read into it, as the Protestants have made it, that anywhere you see Gentiles, it is non-Jewish people. Then we're going to just read that into this and say, these can be um, people with Israel ethnicity in them. And for that matter, they are people who have never had any relationship with God. And so they are fresh people that God is now bringing into the covenant. God will bring people into the covenant. But the covenant is not supposed to be made with Judah and non-people who never existed. The covenant is between Judah and Israel. I hope we got that nailed down. So, we can say something about the circumcision and uncircumcision, but I'll leave it for, for now. Evidence number four. Verse 12. And it says, That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If we're not careful, this can describe people who have never known God. And you'll be comfortable in a wrong interpretation from Levin. And then this will support your wrong interpretation. But we're going to read it carefully. And translate some of the words properly. As has been properly translated in the same epistle. That's why I said we want to just strictly follow Paul's own evidence. So, what this scripture has wrongly been used to say is that, oh, this phrase is suggesting that the Gentiles are in fact non-Israelites because here's the proof. Look, they are are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They are aliens. If they were aliens, then that's true. But they are not aliens. It's just mistranslation. This word translated aliens was also the same word was also used elsewhere. If you read Hebrews 11, turn there quickly, 
just, just to go pick that evidence. Hebrews 11, verse 34. We're breaking into, this is the chapter talking about people who excel in our walk. And verse 34, he said, just breaking into it. Quench the violence of fire. Escape the edge of sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Wax valiant in fight. And tend to flight armies of the aliens. So, truly, this word aliens is referring to people who we don't have a relationship with. Israel, um, I, I, I didn't go backwards. So, whoever quenched the violence of fire, maybe Elijah, they put to flight enemies, people who were not part of us. The same word in English, aliens, is used here. But the aliens here in Chapter 11:34 Hebrews is Strong's 2:45. The aliens in Ephesians 2:12 is Strong's 5:26. So obviously, if the meaning in G2:45 here is correct, they are aliens, people that don't belong. Then it can be the same. Because this is two complete different words. Okay. So what we need to do is to understand the one that was used in our scripture and understand what it means. And we go to the regular dictionaries that we use, the Bible dictionaries. And it says, Talking about the word that is used, Strong's 526 in the Greek, is the word, <laughs> don't try. <laughs> I, they, let's, let's try. Apolotrio. Now, this word means to alienate or estrange, to be shut out. From one's fellowship and intimacy. So, here, we are getting the sense that I work in an area where we talk a lot about parental alienation. When two parents who love their children, and then something happens, the parents are now separated. And then one is trying to win the children from the other parent. Destroy the connection between them and the other parents. And the term that we use, parental alienation. That is, you are withdrawing the children from their intimacy with the other parents so that you win it all. Now, this word, estrange, which is used in marriage quite well, and would be give a more picturesque um, understanding of what we're talking about here. So when we talk about these Gentiles or these people that Paul is referring to and said, 
you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. What Paul is saying, you were actually alienated. That's an operative action that happened. It's not that they are aliens. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And who have been alienated from the commonwealth of Israel in history? That's the house of Israel. They were in that communion. They were in that covenant. And God saw their deeds. He said, no. Out. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And the same word that is properly translated is also used in Ephesians 4.18 having the understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Who are we describing here? The house of Israel. Colossians 1.21 And saying you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now had he reconciled. And we'll come to that. This is beautiful language of God expressing the people that he said out and then in. It's not a people that I never knew you and then all of a sudden I'm bringing you. That's not what Paul is saying here. The evidence does not support that understanding. And the evidence rather support that these were people who already had fellowship with somebody else and they were plucked out because of their sinfulness, because of their wickedness, because of their disobedience. So instead of this verse actually becoming a support for non-Jewish Gentiles, it's actually a support for ethnically Israel who are now become Christians because they have accepted the Messiah. The prayer that we, we said for Randall, if Randall get hold of it, that becomes coming back into the covenant. Let's go to the last evidence. And the last evidence, probably, there, there are a few things here. Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. 2, 14 to 18. For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, 
and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Brethren, this is the place where it all heals in terms of evidence. We can pick some, some pieces. We might not be able to cover all of them before um, I cover um, I finish up here. But quickly, when he said bringing both into one, both of who? Both people who never knew God and people who knew God bring them together as a covenant. Which covenant is that? Trace back. What covenant is that? That God is bringing in this new age, new dispensation, people that never knew him, had nothing to do with him. And then people that knew him, then he bring them together. Where is that? Go back in history. Did he promise that? What we know that he promised, that there's some two that he wants to put together. And that is the house of Judah and the house of Israel. That one we know clearly of old and of new. That he's going to put those two houses together. So brethren, without laboring it, this cannot be God putting together like and like and unlike. These are like being put together. But one like had gone wayward and become like unloved. But God in his mercy is bringing them back. Afar off. Sounds like people who never knew God. And they were so far away. And God is now bringing those who were afar off and bringing them near. You will be shocked to hear Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 praying this same prayer of what God would do and what he would expect God to do. And without turning there, you can, you can look at it, but without turning there, Daniel 9, this probably might be one of the few places I'm appealing to, but I just want to show you that those who are far off is not necessarily talking about people who never knew God. Because when Daniel was praying, he said something. Daniel chapter 9, it's, it's a prayer. And when he got to verse 7, he said, Oh Lord, righteousness belongs unto you, but unto us confusion of faces. As at this day, to the men of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel that are near, and that are afar off, through all the countries, the afar off people is what he's describing now, through all the countries whether you have driven them because of their trespasses, and have trespassed against you. So the afar off that Paul is referring to, he's referring to the ones that were driven, the ones that were broken off, the house of Israel. That when Daniel is praying, he said, God, you need to intervene 
those who are near Judah and those who are far off. The ones that you drove away because of their wickedness. Bring them all together as one. So Daniel was saying this prayer. We also hear about, in this sense, reconcile both to God. Wow. The word there, reconcile, brethren, need some bit of Bible dictionary work. And you will see that this nails it down. Strong's, the one that it's referring to as reconcile. Strong 604. And it means to reconcile completely. To reconcile back again. Bring back a former state of harmony. (laughs) The harmony should have been there before. Before you bring it back. Back again, you should have been there before to be brought back again. So, Christ is bringing this remnant, bringing them together, reconciling them in order to present both to God the Father. Because that is what the covenant is about, that He's going to do. The two. He's going to do the covenant with these two houses. So if he did the covenant with Judah and we can't see Israel, well, that's a problem. We have to see Israel in the covenant. And this is how God brings Israel, the ones that were driven away, into the fold. And you remember Jesus Christ said, I have this sheep. They are here. And then there's other sheep elsewhere that I have to go and bring. And then I will have what? One fold. Him, Judah was there. Hey, let's serve it to him. But at least as for Israel, they knew nothing. They have to come into that fold. And God is going to see the two working together. So, All the things that are said variously in 14 to 18, bringing both together and then breaking down the wall of enmity. Just go and ask the Samaritan woman. She'll tell you. What was the enmity? What's the problem? All these needs to be torn down through Christ because he's able to bring them back in. Christ as our peace. I can't go there. He came to bring peace to that house in order to restore them. Brethren, Caiaphas, high priest, talking about Israel, probably that should be the last one here. I've already printed out the quote, so I'm not going to bore you to read, but you can open it to um, John 11.
John 11, 49 to 52. And this is high priest talking at a time that Christ was being ready for crucifixion. And Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said unto the people, It is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. At that time, Judah. I mean, Judah in that present. And that the whole nation perish not. And then when he continues, he he prophesied that he assured that Jesus Christ should die for that nation. And he continued, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God. Who are those? People not, 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 never had any. Okay, sorry, I missed something. <laughs> that even steals it. The children of God that were scattered abroad. So I'm going to put Judah. High priest knew that Christ, his sacrifice is going to bring Judah and the scattered abroad people, Israel, together as one. This is what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about combining every whatever together. No, there's a place for people to come into the covenant. They always come into the covenant. But that is not what Paul is discussing in his text. So finally, brethren, it is beautiful to finish when Paul captures how all this is coming together. And when you read 20 to 21, and he said, Now to him who is able, oh, sorry, I read something else. 19, rather, to 22, he said, Now therefore you are no longer, so now he's telling them, You are no longer outside, you are no longer away from the covenant, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone that you can never take away. In him, the whole house now, even though the remnant, is being fitted together to grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you are, are the Gentiles who never knew God, You are being built together for a dwelling place? No. The people that knew God but were broken off, they come in together to be put together as a dwelling place of our God in the Spirit. So, I hope these five pieces of evidence internally probably been able to make the case that Israel that we saw in chapter 1 is the same Israel we're dealing with in chapter 2. And so whatever Paul described as Gentiles, he's still talking about people of Israel's stock. Brethren, let's get this word and understand it from the Protestant mindset and understand it in the context of God's covenant and keep hope 
this is going to impact how we understand how things unfold as the world inches to a close. Because if we understand it the way the Protestants understand it, we could miss something. God bless. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.